Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Julie Kibler, author of Calling Me Home, which was an Indie Next pick, a Target book club pick, and a Ladies Home Journal pick, and most recently, she's the author of Home for Airing and Outcast Girls, which is published by our friends at Crown. Julie, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm so happy to be on your program. It is an honor to have you here. Julie, I read on your website that you grew up in Kentucky. Whereabouts? That is kind of a long story. I was born in Kentucky um, in Louisville, and then I moved uh, to New Mexico for a little while, back to Kentucky, and lived in Lexington, and then ended up in Colorado for most of my growing up years. So um, I was in Kentucky until I was about nine. I was born in Versailles, or Versailles, as they call it in Kentucky, and I'm always happy to meet a fellow escaped Kentuckian, though I've heard Louisville is great, and I've had many fun times in Lexington, too. Um, Moving on, you have a degree in library science, which is very evident in your book as much of the later timeline. And listeners, there are three timelines that we are following in Home for Airing and Outcast Girls, but much of the later timeline takes place in a library. I used to work in a university library, so I am curious, how did your studies in library sciences affect the work that you are doing now? Okay, well, um, I started working on my master's degree in library science, um, I guess about 15 years ago. I was working full-time doing customer service for a company and really knew that I needed to make a career change of some kind and was able to go to school, you know, through the company, which was awesome. And um, I decided to major in, to get my master's in library science because I really liked the classes that were offered. They seemed like things I was interested in. And at the time I thought I would um, become a, what, what they call an independent information professional and doing contract work, research, and things like that. Well, as soon as I started getting my master's degree, suddenly people were coming out of the woodworks asking me to edit and write and do all kinds of things that I'd been wanting to do for years with my English and journalism degree. Um, So it was kind of ironic and funny. Um, So I did my degree. I did my internship at um, one of the college libraries, um, one of the campuses, and um, really, Really, and, and then I did do contract work for several years, but then I started writing full-time. So I really say that what it taught me um, was so much about research and finding things, um, just you know, digging for that needle in the haystack, which is, I, I think, something any, any librarian or writer tends to be really obsessive about. Thank you, Julie. I have to say, uh, many times before I do these interviews, I have to ask an author how to pronounce certain names or settings, and you, Julie, have told us within the text of the novel how to pronounce the setting of the Baraka, Home for the Redemption and Protection of Erring Girls. This is a real setting, and your novel is based on real people. Can you tell us a little bit about the historical Baraka home for the redemption and protection of erring girls, and then maybe set your novel up a little bit further for our listeners? 
the home was in Arlington, Texas in the early 1900s. It was in existence from about 1903 till 1935, I think. And then um, it was actually a children's home for a short time after that. Um, It was started by a young couple. They were um, a minister and his wife and they felt very strongly about giving women who had been cast out of society for whatever reason, whether they were pregnant, drug addicts, prostitutes, you know, what have you, um, a place to live and start over. Um, And they were really big on embracing the past and not trying to hide it. And so, for instance, if they were pregnant or they had a child, Um, the women were required to um, sign a contract saying they would keep the baby there at the home for a year so that they could bond with the child. You know, normally they would have, you know, in in most cases lost the child. It would have been given up or um, who knows, you know. So I found out about that. Um, I'd lived in Arlington for like 25 years and had never even heard of this home and just happened to see an article um, about different places in Arlington and um, discovered that this home had been in existence. And it turned out that my son, as a teenager, and his friends used to go to the cemetery um, because they would, you know, go on ghost hunts. And Mm -hmm. so when I told him I was working on this book, he was like, oh, yeah, don't you remember? And that was kind of funny. But um, so that's that was the home. The story follows a friendship between two of the women at the home, which um, I did enough research and there is enough information available through, um, they were kind of like newsletters. They were glossy, not ma- somewhere between a newsletter and a magazine that the home sent out every month for years and years. And there's so many stories of the real women using their real names, um, you know, that it was not that difficult to to find real women to base it on so I was really drawn to two of them and ended up doing a ton of research to find out what actually happened with them throughout their lives and so the book is about their friendship their relationship but also there is a present-day story of a librarian who has had some tragedy in her past and um she comes to this new job at the library and discovers that the home used to be right there across the street from where she works, and she just dives in. Um, and, you know, in the process, she's able to find healing and um, redemption for her own story. Thank you, Julie. I have asked this question of historical novelists before, and I will ask it again of you, Julie Kibler. How do you navigate the writing of a historical novel in so much as how do you determine when to take liberties with the story of someone's life? Um, that is always a really difficult question. Um, my In my first book, Calling Me Home, it was almost 100% fiction, but inspired by the uh, an event that happened with my grandmother um, and then also some present day connections to just like people, you know, that like I have characters that are like people that I knew and they were aware of it, you know, and that wasn't ever an issue. Um, so I, I was able to take lots and lots of liberty with calling me home, you know, other than trying to be true to the historical setting and the, um, you know, laws and 
geography and different things like that. Um, whereas in Home for Airing and Outcast Girls, because I decided to follow the lives of two real women, um, it, I, I kind of feel like it's a little bit of serendipity. Sometimes as an author, you are drawn to the stories that are writable. <laughs> um, I, I was drawn to these two women. Um, uh, one of them, I know it's, it's kind of hard to explain without doing too many, um, spoilers, but they have fairly terminal, um, lineage, if that makes sense. Like I, I kind of checked to see, you know, I went through a lot of censuses and things and I didn't want to use real women who necessarily had, um, children, grandchildren still alive, um, you know, that kind of thing. I, I tried to be very sensitive about who I was writing about and what I did take the liberties with as far as the story itself. Thank you, Julie. Um, much of this novel is rooted in issues of faith and religion. Are you bringing your own struggles with faith and religion to the page, or is your handling of these issues purely through the lens of historical but fictional characters? Absolutely. Um, my dad was a pastor, and um, we moved a lot, and um, so I got a lot of different views of different churches. Um, being, you know, the pastor's kid, you're kind of quietly in the background observing and seeing pretty much everything that goes on. Um, you know, as we as we all know, children are much more observant than we think they are typically. Um, little pictures have big ears, as they say. And then um, I actually ended up, my first marriage was to a minister as well. And so then I continued, you know, another 13 years of being really involved in um, church life and um, obviously the, you know, faith issues that go along with that. But I would say I am always, I have always been a questioner. Um, in fact, that's something I really learned from my dad and I, I really appreciate that from him. We still, you know, talk and talk and talk about issues. Um, and that's something that's been, I've been allowed to do, but I know that that's not always the case. Um, you know, based on other people that I've observed, friendships, um, you know, just different situations in church life where I was kind of like, Ooh, you know, I'm not sure what I think about that. And I don't know if that's right. Um, you know, just a lot of kind of disagreement or questioning that I, that sometimes was public and sometimes was just observing and wondering as a child. Um, so, and of course, you know, as an adult, you, usually at some point kind of question if you've been in the same thing your whole life, you start to think, hmm, you know, this is interesting. If you're, if you're a questioner like I am and you really start to pick apart everything. And that has definitely been an experience of mine for the last, you know, how, however, however many years I've, I've been alive. <laughs> Thank you, Julie, for that fantastic answer. Listeners, we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsor and then I will be right back with Julie Kibler. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from 
booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Julie Kibler, author of Home for Airing and Outcast Girls, published by Crown. Julie, many of the characters in your novel suffered a traumatic childhood. Can you talk about this? The two women that are the main characters in the book, in the historical portion, are um, Maddie and Lizzie. And um, Maddie had a fairly... I would say fairly normal, traditional childhood um, from, you know, what I can tell. But then she became pregnant out of wedlock, and that was kind of the beginning of the really um, chaotic, you know, life for her and the things that happened after that. Um, Lizzie, on the other hand, was... um, at least from the age of six was, um, continually abused and taken advantage of, um, by not only the men, but, but from what I can tell the women in her life. Um, but, you know, especially, um, you know, stepfather, stepbrothers, um, husband, you know, and, just everyone took advantage of her and it sounds like she just really didn't have much choice at all in the matter. She just was, you know, she was a victim of her, her time and her, um, family dysfunction. Thank you. And building off of this question, uh, and this is a difficult question to ask, but without spoiling anything for our listeners and listeners, If you are averse to spoilers of any type, please lift up your phone or other internet device and pause or fast forward for a few minutes. I will give you a few more seconds to do so. Okay, Uh, Julie, there is a rape scene in this book that, as I was reading it, made me sick to my stomach. Um, Two rape scenes, actually, but I'm imagining one in particular. And it made me sick to my stomach because of the powerful way you portrayed the scene, which was not heavy-handed, but very matter-of-factly. I hesitate because of the subject matter to praise the scene, but it was expertly crafted, and it was when this novel took a turn for me as a reader from a good novel to a great novel. Can you talk to us about the process of creating this type of scene as a writer? Sure, and it's like like you said, you kind of hate to say, hate to praise it, and at the same time, I, I never know whether to say thank you or I'm sorry, you mm-hmm. know, like in books that make you cry or books that make you angry, you know, the author, sometimes you just feel a little bit, um, humbled and also, you know, I don't, I don't know how to describe that, but, um, I appreciate your words. Mm -hmm. So, um, that was a pretty difficult scene to write. I went, it went through many iterations. Um, you know, I went, I went through heavy revisions with my, 
my editor on this book, on the entire book, you know, several times. We we really wanted to get it right. But even before my editor saw it, I had my, you know, beta readers, critique partners, etc., um, reading the scene. And um, there was lots of opinion all over the place on it, you know, like, too much, not enough. And, you know, what it really comes down to is the experience of the reader, um, whether the scene is right or not. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's any situation like that, that you write about, it's so much dependent on what the reader brings to it. Um, and in fact, I got a, a text from my son, the other day as because he's reading the book right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, you know, even a little upset about a few things in the scene. And, you know, he's, he's very much like me. We're very, very similar in how we approach things and all the questioning, like, you know, we could probably make each other crazy questioning each other. But, um, so there was just a few little things that he was like, oh, you know, this really, you know, he said this f- felt really, really authentic, but this bothered me and this bothered me. And I don't know how I feel about that, you know. And so um, I feel like I probably got it right because I keep getting kind of, you know, similar reactions to that. Mm-hmm. But there was also, you know, the question of, OK, was it clear that it was a rape, you know, or was it not? And I said, exactly. Mm-hmm. Because that is always the question, you know, when, when a victim of a rape um, goes to tell the story, they are usually questioned about, okay, well, you know, did you do this or did that really happen or what exactly happened, you know? And, and they're like, well, I was raped, you know, but there's just, there's, there's always so much question surrounding the circumstances. So I tried to get that across while at the same time, you know, having it be clear enough that it didn't just stop the reader in their tracks. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Julie. You definitely did a great job with this scene. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. I'm going to bring us back down to more lighthearted fair for a moment uh you date your characters with musical references to creed green day smash mouth and others um how do you feel about the inclusion of pop culture and works of literary fiction you know it's um it's kind of tricky again because you don't necessarily want your book to sound dated but one of the really one of the joys of writing historical fiction is there is the expectation up front that there are very specific time periods. And in fact, so in this story, even though the present story is not historical, it does go back and forth in time about 20 years. And so um, that freed me up a little bit to be a little more culturally correct. Um, and the other, the other answer to that is I love music. I, um, have always just, you know, been a huge music fan and it is kind of fun to sneak in musical references and, you know, some of them people recognize some of them, they don't. Um, in fact, one of the questions that my son asked me was about the musical references, which is probably hard to explain and understand, but he was upset because he didn't think that, a certain person would have 
spin that way if they listen to a certain kind of music. And I was like, <laughs> well, you know, every every musician has uh, a certain percentage of people that are not good. Thank you, Julie. And I want to circle back around to the Baraka home for a moment. What is it about our culture, not only in the World War One era, which is around when the Baraka home is present in this novel and in the world, um, but I also want to talk about the present day. What is it that makes these types of homes possible? In other words, why do we need places to hide unwed mothers and recovering drug addicts? And it is sort of absurd as I say it to even lump those two things together. But why is it necessary to hide these things away from the public eye? Um, well, in that era, I would say, okay, so the similarities between the two eras is... That was a time when there was a lot of turmoil in the world. Um, it was the time when unions were coming into existence and um, Jim Crow laws and women's voting rights and, you know, so many things that were turmoil kind of between the common man and the, you know, gentry, for lack of a different word, Um they in and, and there was lots of change, lots of transition. Well, a lot of that seems familiar now. They you know are completely different um, issues of social justice, but they're causing a lot of extreme opinions and some very painful transition for lots of people. So those are the similarities between the eras. Um, as far as hiding away, the the I'm I'm struggling with that a little bit only because because this home was so against hiding, Mm. um, I looked at it so much from that angle, which kind of then reflected on the present. And, you know, the present and the past in the story reflect upon each other a lot. You know, they're like kind of mirror images. But um, in the present, my character has actually been hiding away Mm. and was hiding away. And she is having to basically expose her history to people. She's having to trust them with it. And then she's having to take a stand. Am I going to, you know, fix these things or am I not? Um, And so it's a lot of times in historical fiction, you'll have the past be something that is kind of a negative thing. And then in the present, a positive charge against that. Um, And that this is one thing that was so interesting to me as I was writing this book is that I was finding a lot more positive in the past <laughs> up against negative in the present. And that was fascinating to me. You know, I, you always love to flip things on their ear as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of fascinating to me. So I don't know if it's because I'm just naturally drawn to situations that buck the system, you know, or if it's, if that's actually, you know, if there's a lot of truth in that, it's hard to say. Thank you, Julie. Uh, do you have any favorite lines from this novel? It's always kind of awkward to say that you like a line that you wrote in a book because sure. you're kind of like, okay, aren't those the ones you're supposed to kill? Aren't you supposed to kill your darlings? Mm. But kind of what I do is I, you know, I, sometimes I'll struggle over leaving them in or taking them out. And, but what will happen is I'll start to see them quoted or, um, you know, my editor will say, oh, let's use that one on a, you know, a graphic or, you know, you'll see them on favorite lines on blogs, etc. So um, something that I was, 
kind of proud of and had a lot has a lot to do with my own family history because we do have a lot of our, our family is fairly fluid. We have a lot of blendedness in our family. We also have foster um, situations. We have, you know, we have fosters that have come and gone. We've had fosters that have come and stayed forever, you know, um, adults and animals. But um, this line from Miss Hallie in the story, who is actually based on a, a real person too, though her name has been changed, um, she is um, talking to Lizzie toward the end, and this is um, what I wrote. In her opinion, there was a line to being part of a family when they weren't yours to begin with, she said. Sometimes the line was moved. Sometimes you moved it. And that just feels so, you know, it feels so true to me. I always like to write things that are true, and that just feels very true. Family is not necessarily um, in stone. Sometimes your family is people that you, you know, are related to biologically. Sometimes they're not, sometimes they are for a season and sometimes they're not later. So it depends on who moves it or if you move it, it's your, you know, it's up to the people that are in the relationship. Thank you. And I asked that question, Julie, because I want to ask you about something in your acknowledgements. You write, Chloe Gropper is responsible for one of the best lines in this novel, which stood out to me the first time I heard it, as related to me by my friend and fellow author, Amy Sue Nathan. It sums up generally what this book is all about. And listeners, um, please pause again if you don't want any spoilers. But Julie, I have to know, what is the line? Sure. Um, The specific line is, maybe you just love people. Um, a little bit of context for that is when Laurel, who's a young woman who Kate has taken under her wing, asks Kate near the end of the story, um, you know, whether she loves men or women. And Kate says, I don't know. And Laurel says, maybe you just love people. And Amy had um, told me that her daughter had said that at one point um, regarding, you know, a similar situation. And I was like, wow, that's profound, you know, just coming from a young, I think she was probably 16 or 17 at the time. And it just seemed so profound and now seems fairly, you know, like everybody should know that by now. But at the time, coming from a young person seemed profound. So I kind of took that and applied that to the story, um, to those characters, you know, to that, that conversation. Thank you, Julie. That is a great line. Listeners, I have been speaking with Julie Kibler, author of Home for Airing and Outcast Girls, published by our friends at Crown. Julie, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm so happy you enjoyed the book. Once again, I would like to thank Julie Kibler for joining me. Her book, Home for Airing and Outcast Girls, is available in-store and online at www.quailridgebooks.com. If you're a writer who wants to explore your craft, receive feedback on your work, and make new writing friends without the pressure and expectations of a university writing program, then check out the Redbud Writing Project. This new school offers in-person classes and workshops in short story writing, novel writing, memoir, submitting, publishing, and more at community locations in Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. Visit redbudwriting.org to learn more and sign up. 
My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.